okay? It's a great, yeah, just how God is here. David Klein is coming um, with more Haggadahs if you need. Um, it's special to be able to share, to share Dibre Torah and the Haggadah. It's special for many reasons. I've always had a great affinity to the Haggadah. My father used to make me pair uh, Dibre Torah from the time I was very young. I wasn't so happy then, but I'm happy that he made me do it, I guess, now. And um, we, we know that the Seder night, on the one hand, as I've often shared, <clears throat> the Seder night is a night of great expectations and very often unmet expectations. You know, you put together a classic Jewish dysfunctional family. Um, you know, one guy's, one guy's wearing his uh, black hat and payas, and the other guy is wearing his folded yarmulke, which, you know, he takes out twice a year. Um, and in between is everybody else on the spectrum, and then you're all supposed to get along. And hopefully we get along, essentially, but, you know, one guy's fifth question is, when do we eat? And the, uh, and the other guy's fifth question is, uh, you know, I just, I, just, I just started, when do I get to say the rest of my, uh, my notebook? So I, I give everybody a bracha that they should figure out the great balance, which is the essence of Seder night. And I want to share with you tonight, 26, hopefully 26 and a half, Torah on the Seder. What's the half? What's the half? Every year I t- always a half because I try not to repeat. If I repeat an idea, that's the half. That's from last year, okay? <laughs> but hopefully 26 and then be a bunch of halves. I'll mention this last year. But the idea is to to come to the Seder to come to the Seder with a, a freshness. Um, and to come to the Seder with a preparation. And I want to start with that. I'm going to, sh- I'm going to say some debate Torah that will be lengthy, some that will be quick. Um, I'm going to focus on a different area of the Haggadah than in previous years. Um, but let me start with this. Uh, again, some of the ideas we said before, but there will be 26 new ideas in terms of the basic, the basic structure. The primary reason why it's called the Haggadah, okay, is because of the Pasuk in the Torah that says, you should tell, you should teach your child. And I've, as I've often said to you before, um, is there anybody that does not have um, uh, Haggadahs, David has extra Haggadahs, right? No. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Anybody needs, he has. Okay, so the, and there's, a, there's a seat here. Uh, if you want. Okay, so the... Um, it's called the Haggadah because of the mitzvah of the Gadah and as I've shared in previous years, that mitzvah of the Yigal there are four places where the Torah speaks about a child on Seder night. And the four children, of course, of the Seder night are the wise, the wicked, the simple, and the one that does not know how to ask. But which one of the four children is the Haggadah named after? It's named after the one that does not know how to ask. How do I know that? Because in the Torah it says... That's the only one, that's the only son that doesn't ask. You have to tell the child. All the others, the child asks. The child initiates. This is the one time, this is the one child, okay, the one child that, uh, that doesn't ask, that you have, to, you have to evoke the question. And how interesting and suggestive it is, how fascinating it is, that the Haggadah is named after 
the one that doesn't ask. That suggests the concept that your job, you, meaning the people that are involved in leading the Seder or involved in the Seder in an active way, your job is to open up the, the, the mind and the heart of the one that neither maybe does not care to ask or doesn't know how to ask. And both of those are called an Eino Yodei Lishol. Either they don't have the emotional intelligence or they, don't, or they don't have the intellectual understanding. And it is the job of each and every one of us to open up, to be able to open up the, other, the, the one that does not know what to ask, to transmit the Misora, to be able to give over something that will want, that will allow the child, or the many children, and the child can be five and the child can be 50, um, the many children at that Seder table that are just there from obligation, and it's our job to give them the energy and the excitement. I want to share with you, in that vein, this is still part of idea number one, which is the idea. Idea number one is that the Seder is the primary way in which we open up the one that does not know how to ask. But Rabbi Beryl Wine, in a magnificent, in a magnificent shear that he gave just uh, four days ago, it's on YU Torah, and I highly recommend it. Rabbi Beryl Wine says that he had a great, great privilege well, he was, he's a rabbi in his 80s. Some of you know who I'm talking about. If you don't know, you can just look up about him. And Rabbi Wine said that he had the great privilege when he was younger to see some of the great Torah giants of yesteryear. And he thinks about that. The Gemara tells us that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Yehuda, the great editor of the Mishnah, said that the reason why I am greater than my fellow, my colleagues, is because I saw the great Rabbi Meir from the back. I saw Rabbi Meir from the back. And had I seen him from the front, I would have been even greater. So being able to be exposed to the greats of yesteryear allows you to see a different type of Judaism. So Rabbi Wine said that when he was 11 years old, and I want you to think about this image, you know, understand the importance of the Seder with this image. When he was 11 years old, he had the great privilege of learning Chumash and Rashi with one of the great rabbis of the previous generation whose name was Rav David Lifshitz. Some of you might familiar, some of you that went to YU, Yeshiva University, might know that name. He was known as a Suvalka Rebbe, who was a, he was a rabbi in Suvalka for two years, but he was a rabbi in YU for 50 years. And he was an unbelievable tzaddik, and he was, in, he was in Chicago, and then he was in YU, I don't know, 50 years, for a long time. And I remember, I had the great opportunity to see Rav David Lifshitz. Nobody wanted to dominate his minion, it was like very long. Why you know, there's yeah, the 35-minute chakrasis, and you had the 55-minute chakrasis. He was the 50... I remember his, but to see his tzuras upon him, and to see his beautiful face, his angelic face. Fred, we have it actually just for you. So please feel free. So, the, so, so Rabbi Wine said that when he was 11 years old, he learned Chumash and Rashi with Rabbi David Lifshitz. And he remembers that, imagine the scene, he learned on Shabbos afternoons, and Rabbi David Lifshitz would sit with him, and when he got the right pshat in Rashi, when he understood the Rashi well, Rabbi David Lifshitz would give him a piece of sugar. He'd give him a piece of sugar. And Rabbi Wine said, to this day, this is an amazing line, think about this line, to this day, when Rabbi, when Rabbi Wine sees an inspirational point in a Rashi, he said, to this very day, I feel Rabbi David's piece of sugar. To this very day, I feel the sweetness of Rabbi David Lifshitz's piece of sugar. We have to understand that if we're giving over the sweetness of Torah, even if at the time the child doesn't understand it fully, they will come back to those moments. 
It, it might take a long time. As a good friend of mine used to say, that sometimes you teach students and it seems like they have closed hearts and you keep on giving them material and they have closed hearts. But the Torah says, the mitzvah is, Vayu HaDivarim HaElem. The mitzvah is to take the words of Torah, put it on the heart. Put it on the hearts of the, of the Jews. At some point, it could be five years later, five minutes later, five years later, or 50 years later, at some point the Jew will have an opening of the heart. And if the Jew has the opening of the heart, then all the words of Torah that were, that were stashed and waiting to, be pen, to penetrate, those words of Torah will enter in a very meaningful and beautiful way. This is the energy of Seder night. It's the transmission of the Mesorah. You can't walk into Seder night unprepared. Ein kedusha hachana. Idea number one, understand what's at stake. We're transmitting the Mesorah. Number two, number two, um, I'm not going to spend a long time on this point, but you will notice, if you take a look at my family Haggadah, the Archgo Haggadah, and again, somebody could follow with me, that, of course, there are many mitzvahs in Seder night, and the seminal mitzvah is the mitzvah of Magid, which is on page 24. But when we, do, when we talk about Magid, like I like to say, people who hear me speak sometimes understand, they hear me say this sometimes, and that is, before I speak, I like to say a few words, right? <laughs> so my drush is never 25 minutes, it's only 10 minutes. The question is, when does it start? 15 minutes in or 10 minutes in? So it's interesting that the Haggadah is the same way. Before you get to the story, the Haggadah wants to say a few words. Right, so take a look with me. For instance, magid means you'll tell the story, but you don't tell the story yet. All you say is, here's this matzah. This matzah is the poor man's bread that our forefathers ate in Egypt. And you don't really speak much about it. You just say, whoever's hungry should come and eat. And then you say, wow, this is, the next thing is manishtana. Which is, wow, this is a really strange night. And you ask four questions. And then you, there's like a little bit of a tease, and you just say, oh, by the way, we were slaves in Egypt. And then we talk about the fact that even if you're a smart guy, right, on page 26, even if you are wise and you're elderly and you're sagacious and you know the Torah, it's still a mitzvah to tell a story. And I want to tell you a story about people telling the story. Because I'm not ready to tell you the story yet. I want to tell you a story about people telling the story. And then we had told the story about four or five rabbis that got together at B'nai Brak and they were telling the story the whole night. And then Rabbi Loza ben gets up and he says, and by the way, I was always wondering, should I tell the story at night also? And then, uh, page 28, we talk about the fact that God is blessed and there are four types of children. And then we go into four, the, the types of questions they ask. And then, on page 30, we talk about when should we tell the story? Right at the top of page 30, should we tell the story from Rosh Chodesh? Or should we tell the story a little bit later? On the day, should we wait till the night? What should be present when we tell the story? It should be matzah, marah, the proper props. Isn't it interesting? Then finally, on page 30, when we're 30 pages into the, the, the Haggadah, when we're several pages into the Magid, we finally begin telling the story. What's that about? What's that about? So the answer, the answer is that... the oh, What's that? The story really starts with mitzchila, from the beginning, our idolatry, our, our forefathers were idolatry. That's really the beginning, and even that's not really the beginning. Really, the beginning is on page 32, but we'll talk about that in a few moments. So we see that the, the author of the Haggadah, the Haggadah is a very ancient work. It appears in the Mishnah. We're talking like a long time. 
The author of the Haggadah is very interested not just in telling the story, but he wants you to think about how to tell the story. He wants you to prepare. He wants you to have the proper props. He wants you to know how to relate to the appropriate questions. He wants you um, to uh, be able to not just say the information, but to elaborate in a meaningful way. As I like to share, in, my, in the olden days when my kids were young, we used to always give out marshmallows. And there were different, like we had different bags of marshmallows, and if you had a really good question, it'd be, you'd get a, a multicolored marshmallow, and, you know, if, and a, an answer gets a marshmallow. And even though, even though there were some adults at the table, they also didn't, they didn't reject the marshmallows, right? Because, because there was, and then at one point we actually brought in a marshmallow uh, gun. They, there's such a thing, you can probably get on Amazon, the marshmallow shooting gun, we'd shoot the marshmallow at people. It was like, we made a whole thing. And we had, and we had um, costumes, and we had, of course, songs, and there's a family that I know that they, they make Pesach money with pictures of Moshe in the middle. I don't know what Moshe looks like. Right, um, there are there's there there's dancing in, in our in our in our seder. There's often there's dancing by the Sephardim. They hit each other, especially the Ashkenazim that show up. They hit with the, with the scallions, right? There's there's a lot going on. If you want, if you want the seder, can I get somebody to get some chairs, please? If you want the seder to be meaningful, you need to think not about simply telling the story, but how to tell the story. And what's my proof? My proof is that the, that the Haggadah itself devotes time and energy to thinking with us about how to tell the story. If your Haggadah, if your Seder is going to be full of yeshiva boys, then you don't need to say, oh, the once there was a paro, and he was, you don't need to do that. You need to think deeply, right? Well, you have to go, you have to go with different types of questions. But if the people at this, the problem is often you have both. Right? So you really need to think, what are the goals? What are the meta goals of the Seder? Okay, what are the goals of the Seder? Okay, um, that's, those are two, that's the second idea. Thinking about how to tell the story. Okay, idea number three. Idea number three, this appears in a beautiful Haggadah. The name of this Haggadah is known as the Hegyone Halach Haggadah by Rabbi Yitzhak Mursky. It is a classic and beautiful Haggadah. And now we move to the very beginning of the Seder. Let's go to page uh, 20, which is Kaddish, okay? There are 15 steps to the Seder. Kaddish, Kiddish is part of Seder night. It is one of the four cups, Kiddish. And we know that the four cups um, is one of the mitzvahs of Seder night, one of the five on page 20 in the Kaddish, in the, page 20, yeah? And um, I, I think everybody knows the famous reason for the four cups. But what most people don't know is that there are many, many, many other reasons that appear in equally authoritative sources. Very early sources. What is the famous reason associated with the idea of the four cups? Four languages of? Freedom. Of freedom and redemption. Both Seiti, Vitsalti, Vigalti, Velkafti, which appears in Parshas Vaira. Um, but there are many other ideas. And there's a wonderful comment that appears in the... Sefer known as the Elio Rabbah, but really has an earlier, an earlier source, Rabbeinu B'chayai, and he says, bear with me now, he says that the four cups, each one is connected 
to one of the letters in God's name. That the four cups are connected to the Shem Havaya, which is the four-letter name of God, also known in English, so they say, as the tetragram, or the tetragrammaton, whatever, whatever your version of that word is. And it's interesting to point out, okay, it's interesting to point out that, um, that one of the main themes of Seder night is that it's all God. That we will say several times, several times over the course of the Seder, it's you, Hashem, not a Malach, not an angel, not a Saraf, a different type of angel, not a messenger, not a Mashchis. Even Moshe is only mentioned once in passing. Right? Even Moshe is barely mentioned. And it's interesting to point out that the gematria, that the Hebrew numeric equivalent of the word kos is the same as Elohim. Is the same as the name of God, 86, Elohim. And it's also interesting to point out, and this is an amazing thing, that many of us are familiar with some of them, but I'm going to show you there are actually ten fours, not ten four good buddy, but there are ten fours in the Seder. Ten recurrences of the number four. And here is the list of the idea of the God's name permeating all of Seder night. Kos is Elohim and Gematria, right? The four letters of that. And why is each Kos connected to each letter? That is, is a very important idea, but we want to talk about it. Here are the ten, the ten fours. Number one, the first one is the four cups. The second one, I'm sure most of us know, is what? The four sons or four questions, that's two and three. Of course, we just mentioned the four languages of redemption, that's number four. Of course, another one that most of us are familiar with is what? Is that there are, well, actually, this is not as well known, that there are four sages in the Haggadah that go to the city of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the hometown, and there are four Chachamim that come to his city. And we are told, for number six, that there are four qualities of being wise. Four qualities of being wise. You'll look later on in the, in the Haggadah. Chachamim, wise. Nevonim, insightful. Zikenim, which means sagacious. And Yodim es HaTorah, um, encyclopedic knowledge of Torah. Four qualities. There are four Baruchs that we say. Baruch HaMakom, Baruch Baruch Shenasan Torah Lamo Yisrael, Baruch Hu. Four Baruchs of the Seder night. There are four verses that we're going to focus a lot on tonight that form the core of the Midrashic part of the Haggadah. The four verses are, for those that are familiar with what I'm saying, the four verses are Arami Oved Avi, Vayar. Vanitzak el Hashem alokei avoseinu, we cried out to Hashem our God. Vayotzieinu Hashem b'mitzrayim, that's another verse. And vayareyu otano amitzrim, four verses that are mentioned in the book of Devarim, which form the core of the Haggadah. There are four statements of God saying, not me, I am not a malach, I am not a saraf, I am not a shaliach, anihu, just me. And then there are four days before the Karban Pesach was slaughtered, that we take, that we took the Passover lamb and we separated it and put it aside so that the Egyptians should see 
and still not protest. That was our courage, the taking of the carbon Pesach. There are many fours because one of the key mm-hmm. ideas of Seder night is it's the night of Emuna. It's the night of faith. You can give a Jew all of the Torah. You can skip to Shavuos. But if you skip Pesach and you go straight to Shavuos, if you don't give the Jew Emuna, what good is mitzvos without Emuna? So Torah, or Pesach rather, is the foundation of Emuna. This is, therefore, Pesach is connected to which one of the patriarchs? Avraham. Because Avraham is the source of Jewish faith. Avraham is Emuna. Okay, so that is a beautiful idea. Idea number three, the concept of the four cups which represent the name of God and the number of fours. Okay, idea number four and five. Idea number four, number four and five. Please take a look with me at um, the following. Uh, we're going to at the following place in the Haggadah on page thirty. On page thirty. Okay, and I'm going to try to go in somewhat order, but um, I might not be doing that. So, uh, page thirty, page thirty in the family Haggadah. Mitchila ovde avodazara hayu avotenu, which is. Um, if somebody else has it in a different Haggadah, you can page scream out. Page 11. Page 11 in this one. Give me the name of that Haggadah. Page 11 in that one. Okay. Okay, in the Goldberg Haggadah. Okay, fine. Um, so, this is really the beginning of the story. In the beginning, our forefathers, our Avos, were Ovde Avodah Zara. They were idolaters. Va'achshav kervanu hamakam la'avodaso. And now... God has brought us close to His service. I want you to think about that line. It's an obvious question. The line starts by talking about the Avos. In the beginning, Avosenu, our forefathers, were idolaters. And what would you expect it to say? And then, God brought them in. Or then, they discovered God. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, in the beginning, our forefathers were idolaters, and then it says, and now God brought us close to His service. What does that have to do with them? We, we're switching subjects. You hear the question? We just changed the topic. First we were talking about uh, um, our forefathers, you know, and, and, now we're going, and now we're going to us. Right? It should have said, that God brought them close. God brought them close. That's question number one. Question number two, question number two, um, we're going to say at the very end of the Magid, I'm going to say the page number, um, it's very familiar to most of us, that in every generation, on page 44, the very end, after Pesach, Matz, and Moror, we say in every generation, a person is obligated, Chayav Adam, Liros, Atzmo, Ki'iluhu One is obligated to view and look at it as if he left Egypt. And this is one of the great difficulties of Seder night. One of the great challenges. In fact, I saw it written in one of the Haggadahs that, um, that one, of the, one, of the, one of the Rabbanim said that that's the hardest mitzvah of, of, of the whole year. The uh, Rav Moshe Sturmbach said, I remember that one of the Gedolah said, the hardest mitzvah of the whole year is, or the hardest mitzvah to fulfill um, no, on Pesach night, not the whole year, is the idea that you consider it as if you left Egypt. What do you mean? You know, I just, I'm living in L.A. It's hard to mm-hmm. consider it as if I'm leaving Egypt. I, left, I consider it as if I left New York. That's, you know, that's, a, that's enough, you know? Um, 
So how does one accomplish, none of us were in Egypt, how does one accomplish that? How does one accomplish that? So they have two questions on the table, okay? So number one is, why does it start with Abu Senu and then switch to us? And number two is, how does one get to this place of Chayv Adam Liros as Atzmo? You have to look at it as if you left Egypt yourself. So, I want to share with you a very beautiful idea, which is really is based on um, the Or HaChayim. The Or HaChayim, Rav Chaim Ibn Atar, in Bamidbar, um, in chapter 22 or so, the Or HaChayim says as follows. When Bilam, when Bilam has his prophetic moments, Bilam says, God, Kel Motsiam Mimitzrayim. God takes them out of Egypt. But Bilam is after the story of leaving Egypt. But he's speaking in the present tense. And says the Orachayim, why doesn't it say God was the one who was Hotsiam Mimitzrayim? Hotsiam is the past tense. Why is he speaking in the present tense? So I'm going to tell you, I want to, I want to read to you the beautiful language of the Orachayim. And then I'm going to, then I'm going to, to give you, give you the, the translation here, because the language is beautiful. Says the Orachayim, Yodei Pinimius HaTorah, those that know the, the inner secrets of the Torah, they know, Ki Bilchol Lele Pesach, on every Pesach night, Mitbarim Kochot HaKedusha Me'aklipa, one is able to extract, to take out the powers of holiness from their shell. Lo Yitzia Rishona, it's not only a one-time event. Every year, every year, God takes out, God pulls us out of our own Mitzrayim. He pulls us out, He gives us a sense of freedom, of Cheros. Each and every one of us, the idea of Yorachayim is that Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is not just the narrative of history. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is an ongoing challenge for the Jew. Think about this idea. Avram Avinu, we're told, Avram Avinu was an Ovid of Zara. He was an idolater. That's what the Rambam says. He was serving with them. But Avram Avinu was able to find God. And what is the author of the Haggadah telling us? He is saying to us, there's a piece of Avram Avinu in each and every one of us. Mitachila, listen to this, it's so beautiful. You know, and, and converts, they say Avosenu. Why do converts say, you know, our, our forefathers? Because, because Avram Avinu is the first convert, right? So, what are we saying? In the beginning, our forefathers were idolaters. Avram Avinu was an Obed of Nazareth. And he found God. And he found God. And now, you and I, Achshav Kervanu, now you and I can tap into that original place of Amravinu. You can tap into it also. It's not a, just a historical reality. God is telling you, if Amravinu did it, and there's a bit of Amravinu in each and every one of us, therefore what? Therefore, you can do it also. Therefore, the, the Baal Haggadah is trying to teach you, don't think this is history. This is current events. That's point number, that's, that's, that's idea number four. Idea number five, just to finish up this point is, how do you do it? How do you, behold or vador, you have to look at it as if you left Mitzrayim. So until now we thought it was what? Until now we thought it was past history. So, you know, you have to think, okay, what would an Egyptian taskmaster be doing to me now? Ow, oh, that hurts. Right, like, you know, like, a tutan, can you please pass, like, you know, so pass the brick. Oh, you're not going fast enough. Like, no, it's not that. 
A person has to, says Rav Simcha Zissel of Kelm in a very, very powerful essay known as Koach Hatsior. He says, you know, and I'll just, I want to just give this, this image. You know that, he doesn't give this image, but I'm giving this image. You know that, we all know this. Simcha Zissel Kelm actually makes this point. In Kohelis, it says it's better to go to the house of a mourner than to go to a wedding. Oh, Kohelis was such a, he was such a pessimist. Wait, it's better to go to the house of mourning. Told the lechas and beis ha'elvel. Let me lechas and beis ha'mishta. Well, well, he, he was such a, he was uh, so he was like a litvach. Kalos was a chalta litvach. That's why he had the echa trap and and purim so, so that even the litvach should be happy. So what's what, why why uh, what, why is it better to go to the house of a mourner? So you know you could know that somebody's sick and you could say to heal them for them, but if you visit them in the hospital and you see them struggling, just today I went to visit somebody in the hospital. I knew that they were sick. But when I saw that person shaking, saw that person shaking, it was totally different. My, my, the tefillah is going to be a totally different tefillah. It says of Simcha Zissel Kelm, part of what Hashem wants us to do on Seder night is to use what's called the Koach Hatsior. This is a very powerful idea that the body mostly use a lot. And that is to use the power of your imagination. It's not enough to say, oh, he's sick. I want you to have to th- think for a moment about what's the family going through? What is the pain the person's feeling? When you feel pain, take a moment to think, oh, now I know what that other person's feeling. When, you're, when you have a stomachache and you know somebody else has constant stomach problems, take a moment and say, okay, now I got it. Now I, now I can appreciate it. Says of Silka Zissel Kelm, Seder night, it's meant that for each and every one of us, we need to probe what is it like to be in a place of a place of servitude, we need to think what what was it like? You could think about it in Mitzrayim terms, but you could think: Are there people or things that hold me back? Are there things in my life that are that are what that are that I I'm, I'm not able to feel? I have to work on feeling. I have to get to a place of emotion. I have to get to a place of envisioning. It's an avoda. And I would just want to add one point. Simcha did not say this, but I want to add this point. I think it's a very important one. And that is, David HaMelech writes in Tehillim, Hotziah mimasker nafshi, God, take my soul out of jail. I would say that one of the greatest challenges of our generation, this, this idea appears in a lot of this farm, is the challenge of numbness. The challenge of being numb. You can, you know, you could you can hear Torah and you can go to a beautiful Shabbos table and you know and it could have no effect on you at all. It could have like a, a five second effect. The greatest challenge of our we're called the generation of the ikvisa de meshicha, which is the heel. The heel is the most desensitized part of the body. The numbness of our generation. It says of Simcha Zissel of Kelm, what what does it mean that you have to look at it as if you left Egypt? You have to stop and think, my friend is in pain. Why are they in pain? What does it mean that they, that, that person lost a child, Lord they knew? What does it mean that they're going through a, a terrible Shalom Bay situation? What does it mean that financially they don't know where the next dollar is coming from? What does it mean that the person is sick? I have to stop and I have to think about, I have to put the image in my mind, the obligation of leaving Mitzrayim requires a lot of hard work. Now, okay, that's idea number five. That's every generation has that obligation. Idea six, seven, eight, and nine. Six, seven, eight, and nine. Rabosa, I'm going to hand this out right now. This is amazing. I just came across this today. Okay, you can uh, take a pass. Very small writing, 
but you'll see why I'm counting this as four um, in a moment. There is a tradition that appears in a few places in the name of the Vilna Gon, ultimately. The tradition is that there are not, I always used to say there are five mitzvahs on Seder night. The tradition to the, dating back to the Vilna Gon is that there are actually 64 mitzvahs on Seder night. 64 mitzvahs on Seder night. And I would like to take five minutes and go through all of them with you. Okay, that's why I'm counting them as four. Okay, I'm going to go through all of them with you. And I actually have the list here. And it's a pretty small writing. Um, but, you know, I apologize for that. Um, but why do I find the number 64 so significant? And this does not appear in the Svarim. And this is the only thing that I'm, that I'm saying that's my own tonight. And therefore you can reject it. Okay? But I often like to share with you that in the world of Kabbalah, there are three realms. I've shared this idea with you many times. There's space, there's time, and there's the human being. There's Olam, this is classic Kabbalah, Kabbalah 101. Olam, Shana, and Nefesh. So the holiest place in the world is the Beis Amidash. The holiest person in the world is the, the Kohen Gadol. The holiest time of the year is the Yom Kippur. So when you have the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies, so you have the convergence of all three, right? You have this idea. Every human being has within him a Holy of Holies. That's the Moach, that's the Seicha. The Vilna Gaon talks about this. That we are all, we are all Migdashes, Beis Amidashes, right? Without going into the details, we've spoken about this in the past. Three realms. So what do we say? What is Seder night about? Seder night is about the four-letter name of God. It's about Hashem in every aspect of our existence. So what's four cubed? Four in the realm of Olam. And four in the realm of Shana. And four in the realm of Nefesh. Four cubed is what, Rabbi Osai? 64. Nobody, the villain goes in there, 60, where did he get that random number from? 64 mitzvahs on Seder night. What's the idea of that Messiah? I didn't do any research on this. But the point is, it's four times four times four. The, the Yud Kei Vav Kei, the realm of Kodesh Baruch Hu in, in, the, in space, in time, and in our complete, our complete reality. The goal of Seder night is for me to see Hashem at every moment of my life, in every place in my life, and within my very, my very essence, my, my very being. Okay, so here we go. That's the introduction to this comment. Here we go. David, you ready? Six, seven, eight, and nine. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just read them to you, um, and there's a lot to say. Number one, mitzvah of Kiddush. Why am I telling you this? Why am I going through this? Because now, I want you to have a little bit of kavanah in mind when Seder night, we're doing a mitzvah, right? Keep the list. No, mitzvah number one is the mitzvah of Kiddush. That's a mitzvah midoraisa, Torah mitzvah. Number two, the mitzvah of Kiddush on wine, because wine is an additional aspect of the mitzvah, and some say it's actually Torah obligation. Number three, a bracha. A bracha. The mitzvah make a bracha. Bracha barbia gavin. Number four, the bracha on Kiddush. Number five, the mitzvah of mentioning Yitzias Mitzrayim, which is Zechel Yitzias Mitzrayim, which we say in Kiddush. Number six, Shechianu. Number seven, to drink the cup. Number eight, to recline when you drink the first cup. Number nine, to wash your hands before karpas. Number ten, the bracha of Nitzias Sedayim. Well, actually, the Vilna made that bracha, but we don't, okay? That's a good question. We'll have to deal with that later. I think on the bottom, they, they, bottom, they probably have to replace it. Number 11, the bracha of Bar Pradama, which is a bit. Number 12 is eating the karpas. Number 13 is dipping it into the salt water. Number 14 is making the bracha of Bar Nefashos, which we don't do either, because the Vilna does that. Number 15 is putting the food on the plate. Number, the, the zroa, the, the uh, shank bone. Number 16 is... Put it, which is a zecha for the Karm Pesach. Number 16 is the egg on the, 
on the plate, which we'll get to in a moment, which is Zecher for the Chagiga. And number 17 is the mitzvah of Yachat, of breaking the matzah. Number 18 is the question of the sun. Um, the Sheilas Haben B'Yitzir's Mitzrayim. Number 19 is the story of Yigartel of Incha. Number 20 is, I don't know if I'm going to do all of them. Number 20 is to start low and end high. That's a very big idea, to start low and end high. Number 21 is the mitzvah of saying the Haggadah over matzah. The mitzvah of saying Haggadah over matzah, which is Lechem Oni. Number 22 is that you're supposed to mention reasons for Pesach, Matzah, and Mor. Number 23 is, you have to look at it as if you left Egypt, we just mentioned before. Number 24 is to thank Hashem for the miracle of leaving Mitzrayim. Number 25 is the bracha at the end of the Magid. Number 26 is the bracha of Bari on the second cup. Number 27 is to drink the second cup. Number 28 is to recline for the second cup. Number 29 is to make the bracha on for the meal. Number 30 is the, not just to make the bracha but to do the Tizadayim number 31 is the Hamotzi number 32 is Anachilas Matzah number 33 is Lechem Mishnah number 34 is to eat the Matzah number 35 is the second Kezayis of Matzah number 36 is to recline for the Matzah number 37 is to fulfill the Mitzvah of Sa'uda of the meal on Yantar number 38 is the bracha on Mar number 39 is eating the Mar number 40 is the Charoses Number 41 is to dip the moror into the charosas. Number 42 is to eat the hill of sandwich korech. Number 43 is to recline when you eat the sandwich. Number 44 is afikomen. Number 45 is there's a mitzvah of eating an extra kezayis um, of matzah of afikomen. Number 46 is to recline with the afikomen. Number 47 is mayim achronim. Number 48 is benching. Number 49 is zimun. Number 450, excuse me, number 48 is, is the cup with the brechas amazon. Number 50 is making the first bracha of Birchaz Amazon. Number 51 is the second bracha. Number 52 is the third bracha. Number 53 is the fourth bracha. Number 54 is the third bracha uh, of Bari Pergafen on the third cup. Number 55 is the drinking of the third cup. Number 56 is to recline for that third cup. Number 57 is to say the halal. Number 58 is to say to, is to um, say the halal. It's a zimun bahalal. What is that? Um, to, to find three people, to find three people with the halal. Number 59 is to make a bracha after halal. Number 60 is the fourth cup of the, the fourth bracha on the cup of wine. Number 61 is to drink the fourth cup of wine. Number 62 is to do the declining. Number 63 is to make the bracha achrona. Number 64 is to be happy on Seder night. Okay? Okay? So, so Rabosai, okay, Rabosai, so this idea, okay, this idea, Rabosai, okay, we got another 20, 15 more to go. Don't be happy yet. Okay, number 10. No, okay. okay, number 10. I want to talk to you for a moment about Karpas. Okay, about Karpas. And I'm going to go back to Magin in a second. But in previous years, I've shared with you, and I'm not going to go into this idea um, other than to add one point. Karpas on page 22. Page 22 in my family Haggadah. Um, Karpas... Everybody, the old reason, the one that everybody is familiar with is, of course, it's the tears. But in previous years, we have shared the incredible idea, which I have not, I'm not going to go into this point in further, I'm not going to prove it, that Rabbeinu Manoach, one of the Rishonim, says that Karpas is connected to the sale of Yosef. Karpas is connected to the sale of Yosef, and that's why the custom was and by the Sephardim, I think it still is, is not to dip it into salt water, but to dip it into vinegar, brown vinegar, red vinegar, or wine. Because the wine symbolizes the blood. 
symbolizes the blood. And um, Rashi writes on Chomish that the word ketonet pasim, ketonet pasim, which is the multicolored coat, is really connected to the word karpas. Karpas is actually not a word that appears in the Gemara. It's in the Gemara, karpas is called the first vegetable. We use the word karpas. But the word karpas in Greek means parsley, petrosalinum. But in Hebrew it means, it means, it means um, according to Rashi, it means a silk garment, like it says in the Megillah. Chor karpas utcheles. Why does why the tradition use the word karpas? Why don't they use what it says in the Mishnah? Yerak Rishon. The answer is, it's alluding to, it's alluding to the coat, to the sale of Yosef. It's alluding to the sale of Yosef. And, um, but, okay, so that, that I've shared with you previous years, so why would I want to say it again? So, here's the point I want to share with you. And this is an amazing, amazing point. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so Karpas, we're saying, is connected to the sale of Yosef. And by the way, why would we mention the sale of Yosef so early on? Why would we mention the sale of Yosef so early on? So, if the answer is, because it's not enough just to talk about leaving Mitzrayim. You have to talk about what? How you got there. Because, you, you know, you, you want to do the proper Mitzrayim therapy, you have to figure out, you know, what got you in there in the first place. Right? So, therefore... So therefore, Rabbi Hanan Wasserman said an unbelievable thing. Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, Hashem Yikom Damo, said an unbelievable thing. And I want to read to you what he said in Hebrew, and then I'll say it in English. He said, Lule de Mistapina, if not for the fact that I was afraid, which usually means that now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, even though I'm afraid to say it, you'll see what I mean. He said, we have this thing called the blood libel. And the blood libels are totally based on their own lies. That Jews bake matzahs with the Christian blood? It's Meyusad al Sheker. How did it ever come to be? So said Rav Elchanan Wasserman, who mechuvan midah kenegin midah bad eze abba, there must be some sin that we did, which we have to pay for, shenifron avru bacholadorus, which were paid for generations. And if not for the fact that I'm not worthy of saying this, Hayiti Omer, I would say, that it's connected to the to the to the dipping of the coat in the blood. That why is the blood libel always associated with Pesach? Again, we can't blame the victims. Jews don't bake bake uh, uh, matzah in Christian blood. But the Khan Wasman wants to know, not just he's not saying historically, he's saying hashkafically. What's the, well, how do we understand what's going on here on a deeper level? So he says, Ve'im shagiti, and if I made a mistake, Hashem yichaber badi, may Hashem atone for me. But Rav Chanan Wasserman is saying an amazing point. Listen carefully. He's saying, and, and the Meshach Chachma says this point explicitly. The Meshach Chachma writes in an unbelievable comment. He says that we know there are two sins that plague the Jewish people forever. One is called the golden calf. And the sin of the golden calf plagues us, the Gemara says, beyond pokti pokadati. If you sin Avodah if you violate idolatry some other time, God heaps back the old sin. We all know this is true. Let's say, and again, I'm using this example, you could, if there are any people that uh, disagree with this example, you can. But let's say, if, uh, theoretically, you know the famous existential question, if a husband is in the forest and his wife's not around, is he still wrong? Right? The famous <laughs> question. So the, so, so, so the, so the thing is like this, the thing is like this, let's say a husband makes a mistake. Okay, he apologize. And then, two years later, he makes the same mistake. Right? Okay, so it could be, again, it could be totally, I'm just, it could be science fiction, I'm saying. It could be the wife will say, you know, two years ago, you did the same thing. And you said you wouldn't do it again. And March 17th, 2015, you did the same thing. And now, just two years and 14 days later, you just, you did it again. Right? So, okay, so, Chazal said that Chazal says, Get rid of these Averos. 
and I'll, I'll accept your tshuva. But if you go back to them, I count the, I, I won't forget the first one. And there are two Averos for which we have this idea. One is Egel HaZahav, and it says the Meshachach, but the other one was, the other one is the Mechilas Yosef, the sale of Yosef. And both of these are the set. One is the ultimate betrayal of the relationship with Hashem, and the other one is the ultimate betrayal of the relationship with, with, with other Jews. Sinas Chinam. And that's why, isn't it interesting? Mm-hmm. Listen to what the Ramah says. We eat the egg on Seder nights. The Ashkenazim. Ramah. Eat the egg on Seder nights. And the Sfaradim, they don't call it the egg, they call it Tachmimor, but it's the same thing. Right? They eat the egg on Seder night. Why on Seder night do we eat the egg? So the Ramah writes, because it's something very interesting, that on Pesach night, the first day of Pesach, the first day of Pesach will always be the same day as what? Tisha B'Av. The first night, it's Atbash. Aleph Pesach is the same night as Tisha B'Av. This year, Pesach night is what? Is Monday. Monday night. Tisha will be Monday night. It should be a holiday. But says Ramah, we eat the Beitzah on Pesach night. Why? Because it's good. Because it's Zechel L'Chorban. It reminds us, why, why are we evoking the Chorban on Pesach night? We're talking about like raining on the party. So what's the answer? Because we have to think about what's the Yisod of Chorban. What is the fundamental dynamic that got us into destruction? We are still suffering from Chorban. And of course we know. What is the fun- fundamental dynamic? Why are we in the time of destruction? Why? Because of Sinas Chinam. Isn't it interesting? We got into Golos Mitzrayim. We got into the exile of Egypt through the sale of Yosef. And we will only be redeemed for the ultimate redemption when we undo that sin of Sinas Chinam. It's one total cycle. Pesach and Tishabah. It's all connected. We have to think about it. And therefore, the next time the Ramah writes, quotes a Pasuk in, Ramah quotes a Pasuk in Yishayahu, the Pasuk is, in Eicha rather, Hispiani Mirorim. God, you have, I, have, I am full of moror. I am full of moror. Which really means, says, says the, um, the commentary that I, uh, I got this from, is said that God, what we're saying, the Ramah quotes this Pasuk in Mirorim, that on Pesach night, what we're saying to Hashem is, enough moror. I'm, I'm, it's genukshoin. It's enough. It's enough of the moror. It's enough of, of, of the churban. On Pesach night, I'm taking the egg. I'm eating the egg. I'm acknowledging how I got here in the first place. And therefore what? And therefore I'm praying to you, Hashem, that I should get out of this. And I'm willing to do the proper tshuva, to do whatever it takes to redeem myself. A beautiful idea, a beautiful addition to the Karpas idea. And I think it's worthy of speaking at the Seder night to talk about how to be mitakim in, in whatever the realm is, how to correct the, the sin of sin of chinam, of a baseless hatred in the context of family dynamic or in the context of particular particular you know community it's kedai to talk about what are ways to undo that because that's also part of redemption certainly it's part of redemption we talk about halach ma'anya let's take a look for a moment at halach ma'anya and they this um, on page 24 page 24 halach ma'anya is the, uh, the is the poor man's bread which we ate um, in Egypt right on page 24, Halach Ma'anya. But the Rambam added a few words before Halach Ma'anya. The Rambam added three words. And these three words is a famous idea. The Rambam says, Bebehilu yatsanu mimitzrayim. We left Egypt in a hurry. And the word that we use for leaving Egypt in a hurry, there's one word that appears in Tanakh three times. And I spoke about it on Shabbos. The word is chipazon, in a haste. Right? We left Egypt in a hurry. 
And the matzah is about leaving the Egypt, leaving Egypt in a hurry. And later on, with Rabbi Gamliel, when we're going to talk about it at the end, we're going to say the same thing. What's this matzah about? This matzah is about leaving Egypt in a hurry. Right? That's the end of the Magid on page 44 in my matzah zoo, because we were in a hurry. And there are, listen carefully, and this will be Dvarah Torah number 11, 12, and 13. The, there are, what's this idea of God making us leave in a hurry? I mean, like, you know, we were there for 210 years. Like, you know, it couldn't have, we, couldn't have, we couldn't have gone slowly. What's the concept of having to leave in a hurry? And in fact, if you look in, I'm just giving you the sources, in Shemos chapter 12, verse 11, it uses the word in a hurry, chipazon, with regard to the way that you eat the carbon Pesach. And in Devarim chapter 16, it uses the word chipazon with regard to the way we eat matzah. Okay, haste. So the question is, what's with the haste? And why do we have to, why do we have to, why did God have to pressure us in this way? So there are many explanations. I'm sure you're familiar with the most famous one, which is that we were on the lowest level. We were on the 49th level of impurity. And the Shla and the Malbim and the Alshech all say this idea. They all say this idea that if we stayed one extra minute, what would have happened? No, what would have happened? We would have been completely and totally sunken in. Totally sunken in. And, in the, and the language that they use is very interesting. That, Ram, that Avram Avinu, he planted. Avram Avinu planted deep roots. But, he, but, but the, the, language, the language of the Rambam, actually the Rambam uses this language, I'm sorry. The Rambam says, Ukimat kat. Had they waited one more moment, Okay, this is not this is not actually a metaphys. This is not a, a a mystical idea. The Rambam says, had they waited another minute, had they, it would have been the ikar. The the ikar is such an interesting word. It means the roots, and it also means primary beliefs, right? Roots of a tree and primary beliefs. That the primary beliefs that Abraham Avinu planted within the Jewish people would have been neekar, would have been uprooted, and we would have gone back to aimlessness. The chosen bnei Yaakov lit litaut olam b'tal yotem. We would become totally, totally um, misguided. So, why did we have to leave quickly? So, the famous idea, idea number eleven. Okay, turn number eleven. Why chipazon is because we would have been totally sunken in had we not left Egypt. Totally sunken in, and that's one concept of chipazon that sometimes you just you just gotta do it. You just gotta move quickly. You just got to move quickly. Don't think about it too much. You just got to move. But Rav Cook has a different idea. And it's not, these are complementary ideas. Rav Cook writes that... Rav Cook, and I, I, I had a note to write to get his beautiful language, but I thought it printed it out, but I didn't. Rav Cook writes that, you know, that when in classic formation of societies, we are often a function of the society from which we came. So therefore what? So therefore we are, a pro- the Western society is a product of Greco-Roman culture, right? Because from, from whence we came. Rav Cook writes that Kalal Yisrael had to be ripped out of Egypt. We were like a, we were like a fetus that were taken out of the womb. But don't think that the nobility and the courage of the Jewish people had anything to do with they, or, or was affected, affected in a negative cultural way. We are not a product of Egyptian society in terms of their influence. The Chippah zone was critical in a certain sense, or Cook is really just sort of explaining in a more of a rational way what, what I shared a moment ago, that the host culture, 
We were forged in the crucible of Egypt. We needed to be totally detached. The nobility of the Jew is not connected to Egypt in the sense that we weren't influenced by them. So Chippazon was, Chippazon was critical in order to create a detachment from the culture of Egypt. That's called, in the language of the Gemara in Brachos, page 9, the Gemara says there were three Chippazons. There's the Chippazon of Mitzrayim. They wanted us out. They forced us out. Number two, the Gemara says, the Jews wanted to leave as quick as possible. That's called the Chippazon of Yisrael. The Jewish people wanted to leave as quick as possible. There's another aspect of Chippazon. Not just that we had to leave because we had to be detached from the culture, because sometimes when idea number 12 is, idea number 12 is you have to be detached totally from the culture, you have to totally extricate yourself. But sometimes um, a person needs to what? The person needs to, a person needs in order to develop his own identity, you need to what? You need to jump in. Let me explain. We know that Klal Yisrael is the people that said Naseh Nishma. We accepted the Torah. We didn't think about it. We didn't think about it. If we would have thought about it, maybe we would have said, you know, it's too hard. Right? That's what the Tzeduki says to the Jew. You're like a, you're an irrational people. There's another aspect of Chippazon which isn't only about get, getting out of Egypt, but getting into Judaism. He puzzled the Israel. Like, don't he, sometimes when a Jew has to say to himself, like, I can't think about it too much, because I think about it too much, um, you know, it's going to be too hard. You've got to jump in. You've got to jump in. You know, like you go to a cold mikvah, right? Uh-huh. You can't just like, let me go slowly. Let the slowly do the word. You've got to jump in. You've got to jump in, right? People have been to reason, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to jump in. And it is in this vein, it is in this vein, that I'll share with you just a quick story that sometimes when a Jew when a Jew thinks about this idea about like just doing it so we don't realize that a Kaddish Baruch Hu, right is going to help us we just say we're going to do it we're going to do it the Panevich Arav who I shared with you many stories Panevich Arav was one of the great builders of Torah right at the time of the Holocaust he left before the Holocaust he lost his wife and 12 children and he built many, many buildings, many beautiful buildings, and Panovich Yeshiva, and, and orphanages, and other and girls' schools, and things like that. And he was always at the banks borrowing money. And the story that Rabbi Beryl Wine told on this magnificent shear is that <laughs> the bank used to say, Panovich Arav, okay, we trust you, but do you have any, chance, do you have any collateral? <laughs> do you have any collateral? He said, I don't have any collateral, but I have the money. <laughs> so they looked at him and they said, well, if you have the money, why are you coming to us? So he said, I have the money, and that money happens to be in the pockets of the many, many Jews that I plan on asking for to get it from them. <laughs> so I have it, I just need to tell them that, I, that it's, I just have to tell them they have to give it to me, but I have it essentially, right? So when a Jew lives, yet, yet you know, we laugh at him, so part of it, Jerob used to say, Ich chalmt, I, I dream, over ich schlafnit. But I don't sleep. A Jew dreams with his or her eyes open. This is a critical idea. Chipazon. You have to jump in sometimes. And now we get to really the beautiful, beautiful third concept, which is idea number um, 14, 
idea number 13, which is the Medrash says, in the name of, I think, Rabbi Yoshua, that there's a third chippazon. So the first chippazon is that what? Is that the Egyptians wanted us out. The second chippazon is that we wanted to get out as quick as possible. And the third chippazon is, the Medrash, the Medrash quotes, right, in the name of Yeshua, Hashem says, I want you. Hashem is the doe, Hashem is running after us, skipping over the mountains, like the gazelle running after us. If we run to Hashem, right, this beautiful love scene, if we run, we're the kala, right, we're the kala. At the Svarisha weddings, the chasen comes out to greet the kala. But the Ashkenazim, they're a little traumatized Ashkenazim, but the Svarisha is beautiful. The chasen comes out to greet the kala. What's going on? Because the chasen represents Hashem. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is coming out to greet his kala. That's the chipazim, the shechina. You, you jump in, I'm going to come, I'm going to meet you more than halfway. That's the Indian of the Chippozon. That's the third kant of the Chippozon. It's something to think about on Saturday night. There are four questions. There are four questions. I'm going to say this point very quickly. There are four questions um, that um, we have on, in the Manashtana. And the four questions, of course, um, are famous. But there's a commentary known as the Maise Hashem that says that each one of these questions are connected to, one of the, to the four sons. And I'm just going to say quickly, um, he says as follows. The Chacham is the first question, and the wicked one is the second, and the simple son is the third, and the, and the one who doesn't know how to ask is the fourth. Why? Because the Chacham understands you can't have a little Chametz, because Chametz on, on Pesach is Asr B'mashehu, even the smallest amount. So the language on page 24 of the Manishtana is Kulo Matzah, all Matzah. You can't even have it in the smallest amount. Kulo Matzah. The Chacham asks lamdisha analytical, intellectual questions. The wicked son says, you know, tonight it's all moror. Because the wicked son is colored by the bitterness and the difficulty of Yiddishkeit. For him, it's all moror. He's the, it's all he thinks about is Judaism, it's, it's all moror. And the simple son, he, he notices very obvious changes. Oh, you're dipping once, you're dipping twice. That's like a very obvious and, and non-subtle change. Mazos, what's this? And the fourth child, the one that doesn't know how to ask, so the commentary says that you have to, sometimes you have to take the children and you have to put them down. The misubim is reclining. You have to put them down, sit them down, and you explain to them. Right? You sit them down, you give them attention. Four questions, four children. Now, let's go. That was idea number 14. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to this, but I would like to now get to, um, I would like to get to um, the essential part of the story, which is on page 30, which is, I'm going to skip to idea number 16, and somebody reminds me of time to go to idea number 15. We say, originally, right, our forefathers were idolaters, right? And, um, and I took you, I, it says there on, on page 30, that I took you, um, uh, and now Hashem brought you close to service, as we mentioned before. And Yeshua said to the people, Hashem, the God of Israel, um, took you from Abraham Na'ar. You were on the other side of the river. You were living in Or Kaznim. You were living in, um, in uh, Mesopotamia, right? You were living in, the, in, in Babylon. And, you know, Iraq, Iran. And Hashem took you and he brought you to Eretz Israel. And what happened? And he made your. He made your 
descendants numerous, and he gave you Yitzchak, and he gave Yitzchak Yaakov and Esav, and he gave Esav Mount Seir, and Yaakov and his children went down to Mitzrayim. So there's a whole there's a whole preface here, and there are really um, there are really several questions, but I just want to mention um, one basic idea, which is based on the, the idea of the insight of the Rav Salvechik and the Vilna Gaon, and that is why mention it's really a quote from Yoshua, but why mention why mention Esav? Like what is why does Esav get an honorable mention on Seder night, and why mention that Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim and Esav inherited Mount Seir. Why is that like relevant to the story of Mitzrayim? So the Vilna Gon says as follows. The Vilna Gon said that really Hashem told Abraham, I'm going to give from your son, there will be my special chosen people. It could have been Esau, could have been Yaakov. Could have been Esau, right? Because both of them are the children of Yitzhak. Keep a Yitzhak. From Yitzhak you'll have a child. Maybe it'll be Esau, maybe it'll be Yaakov. So says the Vilna Gon that like this he said that really the Torah is telling the Haggadah is telling us that God says to God is saying no Esav got his right away Esav got his portion Har Seir he got his portion right away he inherited right away but the, the lot of the Jewish people Am Yisrael the Zerah Yitzchak doesn't inherit right away because Klau Yisrael and this is a very big idea. And this we all know this to be so true on an experiential level. The Jewish people, we need first, before we can get anything, we need to earn it. We need to suffer. But suffering here is not, you know, you think suffering for our sins, not like that. We need, the Jewish people don't get anything easily, right? We earn it. We are a people, the process of challenge, of pain, of suffering is critical for our development. It is within the genetic DNA of Klal Yisrael to be able to accomplish tremendous, tremendous heights. Why? Because at the very beginning of our history, God didn't just say, here, I'm going to give you your inheritance. God said, you're going down to Mitzrayim. And when you go to Mitzrayim, you're going to go through a lot of challenges. And every single challenge that flows afterwards in Jewish history, you can go back and find within yourself the reservoir of strength. Why does the Torah introduce to us Yaakov went to Mitzrayim and Esau got Mount Seir because the Jew had to first experience the suffering in order to first be able to, in order to ultimately accomplish, which was to inherit Eretz Yisrael and to get the Torah. And our Salvation says, that is that process of challenge, of pain and suffering, which allows the Jew to grow. And you remember the Gush Katif, the Gush Katif theme song, way back in 2005. The eternal people is not afraid of the long road. The Klal Yisrael was never afraid of working, of, 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 of being challenged. And therefore, embedded in the Haggadah is this idea of you get nothing for free. You're going to work really hard. And you're going to accomplish. But when you accomplish, it will be something of eternal, eternal value. That's idea number 15. Idea number 16, idea number 16 is where is Moshe in the Haggadah? I mentioned to you earlier that why is Moshe not in the Haggadah? What do we say? What was the basic idea that we said then? What do we say? Anybody remember? Because it's God's night, right? It's God's night. That's a famous idea that many people say. But I just want to add one point that I saw just this year. So don't pay, tell me I put it last. I just found it this year. The Chavetz Chaim said on Seder night, one Seder night, he said a beautiful thing. It's a quick vart. 
Okay, you gotta say a quick word everyone. So also, Chavetz Chaim said, Moshe was the most humble person in the world. You think Moshe would want to reign in God's party? Moshe would not want to be mentioned. Moshe would want to take backstage. There's a concept in, in Yiddishkeit, Ritzono Shel Adam Zehu Kvodo. A person's desire is the way you honor them. It says in the Gemara, you should give the parent uh, water. You should give the parent food. Let's say the parent wants to give you. The, the, child, the father wants to give the son water. Can, can the son accept it? The answer is yes. Why? Because that's what the father wants to do. That's his ratzon. His ratzon is his kavod. So, said the Chavetz Chaim, Moshe Rabbeinu does not appear in the Gada. Why not? Because he wouldn't have wanted to appear in the Gada. He appears as the, as the servant of Hashem, the Moshe Avdo. Because Moshe was the honor of Adam. And a person's ratzon is their kavod. That's a very beautiful idea to share with you. Okay, idea number 17. Now, let's take a look. We have, uh, we're both saying, and they probably go till 9. 38, okay? So, we'll get there. Look, please, I want to show you something very interesting. On page um, 32, page 32, there is a section in the Haggadah which is really neglected. It's a neglected section and it's unfortunate because it's really the essence of the Haggadah, which is on page um, 32, we, after we lift up the cup, and then we say, come and see what did Lavan want to do? He wanted to destroy. Power only decreed on the males, and Lavan uprooted everything. And then we quote four verses. And I mentioned them before. Where are these four verses about uh, from? And what are we doing here? This is the section, which is the major section of Magid, where we're actually doing what? we're actually going into the sort of like the core of the story. And why do we choose these four verses? Because these are the verses that appear in the book of Devarim when the farmer brings the first fruits and he talks about Jewish history and he says, this is my history and I'm bringing the first fruit here and I have a great appreciation for what God did to me. And we go into great depth into these four verses. And it is, this is known as the Drusha section. Usually by this time people are tired and they don't want to have to deal with it. So they just like you move on quickly. But the truth is, there's a lot, there's a lot of beauty here. And so I want to try to like, give you a, a few of the beautiful ideas here. Number one, number one. So we say, Arami Oved Avi. We say that Lavan is worse than Yaakov. That Lavan, excuse me, was worse than Paro. Lavan was worse than, and what? Arami, Lavan wanted to destroy my father. There's a lot of Torah. In what way did, what way was Lavan worse? There's a lot of Torah in that. And I'll just share with you um, one quick idea. In what way was Lavan worse? Again, there's a lot here. I'm, I'm skipping a little bit. And that is, Lavan, Lavan, um, in what way was he worse than, in what way was he worse than Paro? So the Medrash says, the Medrash says that Paro was afraid existentially. Paro was afraid of being destroyed by the Jews. Paro was afraid that the Jews are going to rebel. So he wanted to destroy the Jews, right? He wanted to destroy them physically because he wanted to hold on to his kingdom. But that was Paro. But Lavan wasn't interested in destroying. He was interested in swaying, in influencing. Said Rabbi Menachem Kasher, the worst type of enemy is not the enemy that wants to destroy the Jew physically. The worst type of enemy, and indeed, this comment appears in the Medrash, very interesting Medrash. The Ammonites and the Moabites are not allowed to enter into Klai Yisrael. Why? Because they wanted to seduce the Jewish people. They wanted to sway. They wanted to take them away spiritually. But the Egyptian is allowed after three generations. Why? Because Egypt 
was just about the physical wiping out of the Jewish people. One difference between Lavan, Lavan was, well, he looked good on the outside, we'll talk about that in a moment, but Lavan was different than, than Paro in the sense that Paro was just interested in the physical decimation of Jewish people. That's terrible, that's terrible. But worse than that is the enemy that wants to spiritually decimate you. And the slightly different way of saying it is, you can, there are two ways to destroy the Jew. You can try to physically destroy them, or you can try to love them to death. As we say by Esav, Achiv and Esav. And you know, and I'm going to give you an amazing statistic, I don't know if I might have shared this with you in previous years, that in 1945, there were 146 million Americans. And now in 2017, there are 325 million Americans. More than double. In 1945, there were, in America, 1946, in America, there were, you know, you know how many Jews there were in America? In America, 6 million Jews. You know how many Jews there are in America now? Between 5.2 and 5.5 million Jews. Which means that whereas the American population doubled, more than doubled, okay, immigration, okay, but nevertheless, right, nevertheless, the Jewish population went down. A loss of more than 6 million Jews in demographics. The silent Holocaust of America. Lavan will love you to death. Lavan is interested in bringing you over. There's much more to say about Lavan. Okay, but... Then we talk about the fact that by our um, idea number what, David? We're giving you up to? No, idea number... Update, okay, right. So, our, so we talk we about... 15? Yeah, I went, back to, I went back before. So now, take a look. To, I'm sorry. So Arami wanted to destroy us, right? And what happened in Egypt? In Egypt, we became... Right? We went to Egypt. We went... We became a great nation... Atsum Varab. So what do we do in the Haggadah? We take every line, we take every line, and we look at each line on page 32, and we, we go into each one in some great depth. So we say, for example, we, we started out small, 70 people, and now we became like the star, stars in heaven, millions of Jews. Varav, Atsum Varav, great, mighty, Varav, and numerous. And then we quote a very strange verse. And so again, I can't go into it in great depth. But the verse that we quote is a little bit like it's a little bit descriptive. It says, And I made you as numerous as the plants of the field. And it says, And you became, you grew and you developed, and became charming and beautiful a figure. Your hair grown long, but you were naked and bare. What's going on here? Well, this is a quote from Yechezkel. What's going on here? So Salvechik says something very beautiful. And you have to actually look in the text in Yechezkel, chapter 16. And it's really a, a fascinating comment in terms of what it means to be redeemed. Because part of what it means to be redeemed is not just physically to be redeemed, but you have to believe in yourself. And if you look in Yechezkel, you'll appreciate this. I'm just going to give you the idea quickly. Yechezkel tells the story of a girl who thought of herself as a child without responsibilities. Told by a passerby that she was an adult, possessing a great potential to form a community, and to give her friendship and loyalty. Yechezkel tells the story of a young girl who didn't think anything of herself. The Jews in Egypt thought very little of themselves. They didn't believe they were worthy of freedom. That they were qualified to conclude a covenant of love and devotion with the Almighty. Moshe came with the message of freedom. That they were not certain that a band of laborers was capable of loving and being loved by God. And Moshe said, no. Varav. You see, the word varav can actually mean two things. The word varav can either mean you're numerous, or varav can actually mean grown up. Varav is being 
explained midrashically, not just you're, that you're, you're, you're millions of Jews. Varav, you're something special in the eyes of God. You think you're naked? You think you're, you're devoid of value? You don't even know how great you are. At a Romeria, as we say here, you feel that you're naked. But I'm telling you, God says, I'm telling you, you're worthy of being redeemed. I'm not redeeming you because of randomness. You're worthy of being redeemed. This is, by the way, this is not like a fancy midrashic pshat. This is really what Yechezkel is, is, is going on Yechezkel. You have to tell the person at the Seder, you're a Jew, it's beautiful to be a Jew. Kaddish, Kiddish is the first cup of Seder night. Kaddish means the Jew is Asher Bachar Bonamikolam. God chose us, we're special. Okay, that's, that's one important message. Then, page 32 again, the last line. Idea number 19 or something like that. The Egyptians did bad to us. They did bad to us. So what do we do with that line? So we say, as it says, let us deal wisely. What we're doing is we're taking the verses in Devarim, the verses in Devarim, and we're going back to the story in Shemos, and we're trying to show like, how, it, how it really came out. But really, we're doing something much deeper here. We're saying, the Egyptians did something bad to us. They do, they were bad to us. So the commentaries ask, really, by Areo son of HaMitzrim, that they did bad to us, should have said, by Areo Lanu HaMitzrim. Lanu means to us. Otanu means, not to us, but rather what? Otanu means us. By Areo Otanu HaMitzrim, this question is asked by many of the commentaries, it should have said that the Egyptians did bad to us. Why by Areu Otanu? So the Al Sheikh explains, and our Salvatic explains it in a similar way, that the Egyptians didn't just do bad to us. The Egyptians said that we were bad. The Egyptians made us feel bad. The Egyptians made us feel evil. It's one thing to beat you, it's one thing to physically punish you. It's nothing to say, you're terrible people. Mr. Mermel, a very special Jew, I'm very close with a 98-year-old Jew who, who, lived, who lives uh, in Los Angeles, told me that when he was in the, working in the Hungarian labor camps, he said that the, he was cursed at and he was totally like, degraded. And at one point he turned to his friend, Mr., Mr. Eisenberg, and he said to him, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe there's a reason why the, all the Jews, everybody hates the Jews. Maybe we are parasites. Maybe we're terrible. Maybe they're right. So he said, Mr. Eisenberg turned to me. Mr. Mermel told me the story. Mr. Eisenberg turned to me and he said to me, look at that Hungarian commandant right now. You have, I'm telling you now, you can be him. You can be him. Do you want to switch places? I'm giving you the opportunity now to be him. Do you want to switch places? And Mr. Mermel said, at that moment, he changed my life. He saved my life. I realized I'm not going to let him define who I am. By Areo Otano HaMitzrim, the Egyptians tried very hard to make us feel evil. They vilified the Jew and they were effective to some extent. And then we say, that's idea number, I don't know, I've lost my count already. Um, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just give you 21, 22, 23. We're going to have to call it a night because I promise this. I, I just don't want to go leave people that much longer. So I'll be, to be short, I apologize. But we end with, okay, after maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, send out and I'll send out on the WhatsApp just to finish up the other ideas. But we end with Pesach, Matzah, and Marah. 
the end of Pesach Matzimah. This is so, this is mamish, very meaningful to me, I'm going to share with you now. Pesach Matzimah, page 42. Pesach Matzimah. So, Pesach, Rangalio says, a Jew has to say these three things, right? You have to explain these three things, otherwise they have not fulfilled their obligation. So Pesach, and this is really based on Rabbi Barawai, Pesach, because God skipped over us, right? That's the famous thing, God skipped over us. But really, Unklis and Rashi say that the word Pesach doesn't mean God skipped over us. The word Pesach actually means God loved us. Pesach actually means Vachamal. God had Rachmanis on us. God loves us. Pesach means that God loves us. One of the most important messages of Pesach night is, it's very politically incorrect, is that God has a special relationship with you. What do you think you are, special? Yeah. Pesach. God chose us. As I mentioned to you before, right? Kiddush. Kiddush. Asher Bach Mikalam. You know, in the same place that we say Kiddush, we do Havdalah. In that same section, if it's going to be a Moti Shabbos, we'll do Havdalah also. Because the Jew is very good at making Kiddush, but is not so good at making Havdalah. Right? We're not so good at separating ourselves from the rest of the people. One of the most important messages that we are in Am Segula. We have to be able to explain the specialness of learning Torah, the specialness of doing mitzvahs, the specialness of that bond, of that relationship. If we cannot express the specialness of being a Jew on Pesach night, we will not be able to translate, transmit the Messiah. Rabbi Beryl Wine tells a story, I have to tell you the story, that when he was, when he was growing up, his father was a rabbi in Chicago, he said the Hashkama Minion had 750 attendees. 750 attendees came to Ashkabamin. He said, now, nowadays we know Ashkabamin and God, God dabbed the Ashkabamin, right? Only the serious Jews. But then, you know who went to Ashkabamin? In Chicago, 750 Jews. Who went to Ashkabamin? It was the Jews that went to Shachris and then they went to hear Kriya Torah and then they heard Haftorah and then they went on the trolley to work. They went on the trolley to work and, 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 and that, that was, they went to Minion. They went to work. And guess what he said? The children of those Jews they didn't go to the Ashkabamin. And the great-grandchildren of those Jews, they didn't, did, they didn't marry Jewish. He said, when I was, he said, when I went out, of, when I was out of law school, and I passed the bar, and I got a job, I told them right away, not Friday, not Friday, late Friday afternoons, in the winter, and not Saturday. And three weeks into the job, the guy said to me, the head of the firm said, we're having a big closing, all lawyers must come. And he, I said, he called up, he told the guy, he said, listen, I told you, I can't come. I, this is the deal. So, the, so the, the head of the firm said, go to a rabbi and get yourself permission. Get yourself permission. So he said, but no rabbi that would give you permission is a real rabbi. He said, I didn't last that long in the firm. Because that was the way it was. That if a Jew didn't, and a Jew, especially right in America in the 1950s, a Jew didn't believe in the holiness of what he, was, of what he stood for, he would wilt under the pressure. Pesach is, don't give in to the pressure. You are special. You have a special bond. Matzah. Matzah. Matzah, as we mentioned a moment ago, matzah is the idea, right, that sometimes we can't overthink things. Sometimes matzah is the michla de mehem nusa. It's the bread of faith. I don't know how it's always going to work out. The Panavichirov's son, was left, his, the Panavichirov left his son $5 million in debt 
because he died suddenly and he, and, and he didn't know how he was going to pay for the buildings. And Rabbi Wine tells a story that he didn't think that the son had the same charisma as the father. And a few years later, the son said, I paid off all the buildings. He said, how did you do it? So he said, well, I don't know exactly how he did it. However, well, I used to go collecting with my father and I used to help him. He'd go collecting and I'd help him. And apparently now that I'm doing the collecting, he's helping me. Right? He's helping me. So a Jew who understands that he's doing Hashem's work, that gives him koach. Matzah is just do the right thing. Don't always figure out how it's going to work. And moror, perhaps this is the most important lesson. Moror. It's interesting. The Svas Emes and others raise the question. Why is moror after Pesach and Matzah? Pesach and Matzah, then moror? No, it should be what? Moror is before Pesach and Matzah. Moror was the subjugation. The answer is, the answer is, that a Jew has to always understand that moror, as it's happening, is very bitter. But Pesach Matzah allows you to then reframe the moror. What does a Jew do? Moror is an unavoidable reality of life. Moror is bitter. We will not, none of us in this room will be able to escape the bitter parts of life. Moror is an inescapable part of life. But it's interesting, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin that there were these dry bones. We're going to read about this Dafka and Pesach. Dry bones that they came to life. He said, God says to Yechezka, will these bones live? Yechezka says, I don't know, God, you tell me. And God brings these bones to life. And they come and the, 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 the Navi describes how they came back to life and they live. And the Gemara says, says, what happened to these dry bones? Listen carefully, it's so beautiful. What happened to these dry bones? The Gemara has two opinions. One opinion says, they came to life, they said Hallel and Shira, and then they went drop dead again. And the second opinion of the Gemara says that Rabbi Yehuda says that's impossible. What do you mean that they died? I am from the descendants of the, of the dry bones of the Atzamas Ayyavashas. I'm from the descendants, and I am wearing the tefillin of one of those people. I am from Ibnay Bnehem. So said Rabbi Barawine, after the Holocaust, you had a whole bunch of dry bones, people that were completely destroyed. And what happened? The question is, will they live or will they not live? What does a person do with the moror of their life? So the Hassam Sofer explains, how could both opinions be true? Did they drop dead or did they, or did they stay and continue to live and have children and grandchildren that were tefillin of, of their descendants? Which one was it? So the Hassam Sofer says they're both true. There were some of those people from the dry bones that came back to life and they died right afterwards. There were some people that came out of the Holocaust and they, they totally lives were destroyed and they totally were unable to rebuild and they left the Khadashbrahman, we can't judge them, and they and they are and through their descendants we have a lot of anti a lot of anti-spirituality, shall we say. And then we have the other descendants, right, the ones who took the moral of their lives and said, I'm not going to let it defeat me, I'm going to be able to live a life of focus. And therefore the Satmarav and others who didn't sleep, Mamish didn't sleep in a bed after the Holocaust, and he spent his whole life to rebuild and rebuild and rebuild, as did many others. And, and, and from, them, we are, from them, we are the beneficiaries. How does one deal with the adversities of life? How does one deal with the moror of life? If a person is able to see moror in the context, context of Pesach and Matzah, then they can feel the redemption of moror. How does a sickness affect somebody? Sometimes a person is, is very, very sick. They can learn the value of relationships. They can learn the value of life. They can learn how important the small things are, how unimportant the, the material aspects of life are. We can learn from moror how to value what's important in life. This is also an important idea of Pesach night. The Jews who experienced moror and came and rebuilt and they were Mechavah of the Torah, 
Hashem should give each and every one of us the ability to be able to experience the moral of our life in the context of Pesach and Matzah. And I'm sorry for not finishing.